Welcome to the Dignity of Women, where we dig deep into the vocation and dignity of women in the church, in modern times, and as an answer to the call for a new evangelization. I'm your host, Kimberly Cook. Joining me today is Diana Mao. She is the president and co-founder of the NOMI Network, which creates economic opportunities for survivors and women at risk of human trafficking. And Diana co-founded the NOMI Network after a rewarding career in economic development and management consulting. Since its inception, Diana has played an instrumental role in making NOMI Network the catalytic international organization it is today. She is responsible for the strategic direction of the organization since its founding and building NOMI Network's board and strategic partnerships with large corporations, funders, and investors. A 2015 Presidential Leadership Scholar and New York Academy of Medicine Fellow, Mao earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in Business Economics from the University of California, Santa Barbara and a Master of Arts in Public Administration with a specialization in international management from New York University. She received the Pioneer Award from Asian Americans for Equality and New York University Recent Alumni Award for her critical work in conceiving and building NOMI Network to the powerful force it is today in the anti-human trafficking movement. Thank you for being here with us, Diana. Thank you so much, Kimberly. It's such a pleasure and honor to be here with you today. Thanks. So what I want to know first is what is the NOMI Network? Tell us about that and how you were personally called to this cause. Yeah, definitely. That's a great question. Um, So NOMI Network is named after a survivor who's eight years old. I met her in Cambodia back in 2008. And um, when I met her, she was living at an underage shelter where girls as young as five years old were trafficked or sexually exploited. And as soon as we arrived, this shelter um, at an undisclosed location near the Thai border, she uh, ran across the playground and greeted my co-founder and I with a warm embrace and smile. And we were surprised because we expected a lot of the girls to be very, um, you know, um, to themselves and really non-engaging. Uh, but she came to us and followed us around as her director gave us a tour of the shelter. And as we learned her story, the more I learned about her story, the more um, just outrage I became, like hearing her expectation begin at such a young age. She was trafficked by her stepfather and her mother allowed it to happen. And when the shelter um, workers, outreach workers found her. She was caged and, you know, could not speak, um, as well as was biting, you know, and drooling, biting people. And so it was just heartbreaking for my co-founder and I to hear her story. But at the same time, we saw such great hope. Um, fast forward a few years later, she was at this shelter receiving care and nurture and, we thought as we were conceiving the idea of Nomi Network, um, how amazing it would be if we were to share her story, but also her success and her growth and her living up to her full God-given potential and the network behind her, my co-founder and I, um, and eventually my third co-founder, as well as other people in our network enlisted to be her network. And so in 2009, we launched Nomi Network, and now 
we are um, continuing to grow and add on, as you uh, read my bio, to corporations and um, activists, as well as um, pastors and people in the fashion industry. And so everyone um, that we meet and we come across, you know, once they hear her story, they sign up and they want to be a part of her network and women and girls like Nomi who have suffered just such tragedy in their lives, but have so, so much potential. And when I named um, the organization after Nomi, I really thought of just what it means um, for us to be known, you know, and the idea that God knows us, he knows our most innermost pain and innermost um, desires, um, as well as the innate human um, desire to know um, and be known. And so um, naming Nomi Network after her just made total sense um, because we wanted to tell our story as well as connect the average person living in New York City and the United States to the issue of human trafficking. And I think we hear a lot about human trafficking. We hear that word thrown around a lot, but we're not necessarily sure exactly what it means. Um, for instance, the picture that you just painted of Nomi having been found in a cage, you know, an eight-year-old girl. And this was her stepfather and her mother consenting to her being taken out of the home for this purpose. I think that as Americans, it's almost so foreign for us to think about this kind of thing. When we think about child abuse or anything like that, um, it's, this is just so horrific. And, um, as far as your personal story, despite a wonderful education and many opportunities to personally succeed, it seems that your life was changed by this personal encounter of suffering when you met eight-year-old Nomi. And you had talked about earlier on your site that your fellow New York University colleague was offered one of the young daughters of a Cambodian man in a rural village that you had visited. Um, on a trip that was not in any way related to human trafficking, but those personal encounters that you had kind of changed course. Um, you know, you were kind of going towards this career in economics or maybe medicine or something like that. And then you were willing to kind of give all of that up to focus on pulling these women out of human trafficking and raising awareness. How did you feel that um, others in your life reacted to that family, friends, or, um, maybe people that had invested in your education or followed you along. Did they, were they surprised by that shift? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, you know, being in, um, New York city and growing up in the United States, I consider myself very, very privileged and living in New York city, when I had brought this attention, uh, this issue to the attention of my friends, they were excited to join. And, you know, at the time I was still working in business consulting and um, taking on Nomi as my volunteer project. Um, but when I made that shift from volunteer to staff in 2012, um, sadly, uh, most of my family was not very supportive. Um, I come from a culture, uh, Asian culture, Chinese background, where um, 
you know, career is very important. And in essence, it's an idol. It's the number one idol, I would say, in my family, where my cousins, um, my uncles and aunts, uh, being, you know, immigrants from China and from Taiwan, um, living the American dream, but also excelling. And, um, you know, they've definitely excelled in their respective fields from doctors to lawyers to um, entrepreneurs. And so, um, looking at the not-for-profit sector is not a sector that they are very, um, they don't really understand it. And at the same time, um, they don't see it as sadly a viable career. And so across the board, I would say in many Asian American families, that is a challenge. And so um, even from, you know, coming from a family growing up in the faith, um, there's a clear separation, you know, between Sunday as well as you know, what you do professionally. So um, at the same time, um, I found great encouragement through my own faith and knowing that I've been called to do this for this season of my life. I started Nomi um, at the age of 24. And so now, you know, fast forward um, 10 years later, it's just um, actually more than 10 years. <laughs> it's been just an incredible journey of really um, people around me now seeing, you know, my cousins now seeing um, the fruit of Nomi, the impact, and they have become more supportive as well. But initially, they've, you know, even my cousins my age expressed um, disapproval in the early years. I bet. I bet that was a hard shift. And I give you a lot of credit for taking you know, following your heart basically instead of your head and maybe your debt, you know, things like that, realizing that you're not really sure where this is going to lead um, as opposed to maybe a medical career or something like that. So I just give you a lot of credit for that. And um, thank you for what you're doing for these women and um, for just raising awareness all across the world. And um, I wanted to get to the topic of how common this is, human trafficking, because we talk a lot about father wounds and about over-sexualization of children from early ages, but I can't imagine a father offering his eight-year-old daughter um, to a grown man for money or, you know, allowing her to permanently leave the home to enter into this, um, yet it seems like it in certain countries and in certain areas, this is a lot more common than we know. Yeah, you know, sadly, um, it is very common, especially in rural India. Um, the specific incident that you mentioned was in Cambodia, and that was my first touch point um, with human trafficking in 2007 before I met Nomi, the girl. And so in this village, um, you know, this father... You know, I've read cases in graduate school where parents have addictions or gambling problems and sell their children to feed those addictions. But in his case, I really could tell from the desperation in looking into his eyes that he wasn't, you know, trying to sell her for financial gain, but really um, with, you know, seven children, it just was difficult to feed them. And I knew that they were living in a small hut. In fact, we were sitting in his hut when we were interviewing him and that he had no assets and was engaged in low yield farming. Um, 
And really, when we asked about food, he basically had like bowl of rice to feed the children, you know, bowls of rice to feed the children every day. And so that was all that they had to eat. And after we interviewed him, when he offered my male colleague his youngest daughter, I could tell that it was out of economic desperation and poverty and not necessarily, you know, like he was trying to make money from selling his children, like some of the cases I read about in anti-human trafficking. And so from that point, you know, and working now in 2012 in India for the past few years, intergenerational prostitution is very common in India where families, because there is no other livelihood option in villages where there's no running water or electricity and women are pulled out of school at second grade, third grade, um, men are engaged in semi-skilled labor and, you know, oftentimes not working or working um, seasonally, they have no other alternatives and whole communities uh, because of, you know, disasters. For example, 40 years ago, there was a natural disaster, a flood in the area that we initially started working in. And there is a whole Muslim community that they, their trade, primary trade was being butchers. So they were butchers. And after the flood, they reverted back to intergenerational prostitution. So um, intergenerational prostitution is where families will prostitute their daughters, their wives, um, you know, and their spouses, I mean, their, their daughter-in-laws. So it's, um, you know, it's a really horrific practice, um, you know, and on top of that, there's child marriage, bride burning, and a lot of these norms um, in a context of the caste system, which is still very much in role and play today in India, um, perpetuates this issue. So there are 46 million people in slavery today, according to Slavery Index, there's uh, 40.6. According to scholar, other scholars, there's 46 million, and half that population of people live in India. So um, besides corruption and lack of rule of law, I would say the caste system and poverty drives those figures. Interesting. And what do the rehabilitation centers for child victims of human trafficking look like? What is the process of recovery and what's the success rate? I know that from your site, um, one of the quotes that you guys had that stuck out to me was, know me, know my story, know my success. Yeah, yeah. And that's, um, that is, that is something I hold fast to every day um, because the women that we've seen um, more so in the empowerment and uh, reintegration phase. So in the journey of a woman and a girl, um, their path to freedom, there are many phases in the recovery from rescue to rehabilitation, which usually consists of counseling, receiving counseling, receiving shelter, um, reintegration, which includes like a vocational skill, a trade, addressing some barriers to work, major barriers to work, and then empowerment, which um, is um, once they've secured a job and they're in essence, uh, preventing the next generation from being exploited, because in many cases, women will have children as well. And so 
for Nomi, we focus on, oh, and there's prevention. Prevention is before rescue. A lot of anti-trafficking organizations are now focused on prevention because it costs, um, I think the last figure in the U.S., it costs about $40,000 to rehabilitate a person that has been in slavery. And prevention with targeted efforts um, is definitely you know, in the hundreds in terms of per person in serving people and making sure that they're not exploited uh, to begin with. And so we're in the prevention and also empowerment space. Um, but I would say the success rate in, you know, shelters, it depends, really. Um, it depends on the shelter. And there's no, I would say, data across the anti-trafficking community because there are so many really small shelters in these international, you know, rural communities. Um, but I would say, you know, from the U.S. side, um, the success rate is, um, you know, I would say probably about 50, 60%, because unfortunately, a lot of times women, when they're not provided a network, will revert back. Um, and some of their initial, you know, um, the ways that the traffickers kept them under control with drugs and, and all types of addictions that they continue to struggle with after they've been liberated is still a huge problem. Um, and so it's not just a short term fix. And in the US, you know, women to continue to walk with them on their journey, it takes a lot of resources. So unfortunately, there is a lot of recidivism in uh, providing care for women. And in terms of Nomi shelter, um, where Nomi lives is a shelter run by an organization that is a ministry, and we partner with shelters like Nomi to provide them with empowerment services like training, vocational skill building, um, having them be able to take fashion school courses that we offer. And so for her, I know that they've been successful at reintegrating girls um, back with families when they do their due diligence on how did, you know, girls like a girl like Nomi end up in the brothel? Were her parents manipulated? Were they lied to? Was she promised a job in Phnom Penh, the capital of Cambodia? And they really thought she was going to go work, you know, as a domestic servant or work in a factory. So then they sent her um, so in those cases, often they will be re reintegrated eventually with their families. But in the case of Nomi, uh, on top of that, she now has a mental disability. She's uh, 18, 19 now years old this year, I believe. So she, unlike the other girls, uh, will still be at the shelter. So every year when we visit her, she's at the shelter. She's at the long-term care unit. And that's because... Um, her stepmother or her mother is still with her stepfather. They're still together. And so that, you know, most likely she will not be reintegrated with her family. Um, but that I would say is a success rate in the sense that it's a very tailored, holistic approach that the shelter takes in ensuring that the girls are safe and the environment that they enter into after the shelter is a safe and secure environment where they won't be re-exploited in any form. Mm -hmm. And hopefully the community that they have together in living with other women and girls who have had the same experience, hopefully that in 
of itself can bring some healing. They're not in an environment where nobody really understands what they've been through. So I'm sure that has some benefits as well. Yeah, absolutely. It does. It builds community. And whenever I visit Nomi Shelter, I really sense it. And there's such healing. Um, You know, the girls will often wash each other's hair. Um, They actually, when they wash each other's hair, they don't use a sink. So they shampoo each other's hair in their dormitories. And just really, there's like a strong bond of sisterhood, which is really powerful and beautiful to see. That is very beautiful. And human trafficking is a $150 billion industry existing apparently in every country and enslaving approximately, as you said, 46 million people. So a lot of times when we think of human trafficking, we think of it in places like Cambodia or you know these Indian impoverished cultures um, that are very far removed from our own. Is that true? Um, When you say it's happening in every country, is it here as well in the United States? Is it in neighboring countries? Is it really everywhere? Yeah, it's definitely in the United States. Um, I believe the most recent figures estimated that about 200,000 people are in slavery um, in the U.S. um, who have been trafficked. And so that is, um, you know, I know there's, continuous research around data, around figures. There are foreign-born survivors of sex and labor trafficking, those trafficked in the U.S. from, you know, different countries. I've met survivors from Brazil, from North Korea, from China, from uh, Sri Lanka that were trafficked in here with the promise of a marriage, with the promise of a job um, in most cases and end up in just horrific circumstances. I've also met survivors. Uh, most recently, I met a survivor who um, grew up in Colorado and ended up getting into a relationship with someone who was tied with a, a criminal network and then became trafficked at a, at, at her, during her teenage years and then ended up in New York City. Um, but had a real, you know, her mother um, discovered it or she notified her mother and then with law enforcement, they got her out of that situation. And so in the U.S., it looks a little different. It could be girls like her that, you know, um, ended up in a relationship with someone that's tied to this industry, or it could be someone who's aging out of foster care. That's pretty common. Um, And what's even more common is homeless youth likelihood of a homeless youth being approached by pimps and by the trafficking network is extremely high. As soon as they're on the street, within hours, they're solicited for sex. And so um, it's, um, yeah, there's definitely, I've seen firsthand also um, trafficking unfold in New York City as well. And so when that, you know, happens, I mean, New York, there are thankfully ways that we can report um, trafficking as well. Um, there's like a hotline that you can call. There's also law enforcement when it's very serious. Um, for example, if you see someone right in front of your face being trafficked, then one should call uh, law enforcement because they could take immediate action. By the time you call the hotline, they would have already disappeared. So yeah, those are some ways that the average person can take action. That's good to know because I think that is a common question. What can I do if I suspect something, see something, or you know, 
do I just keep my nose out of this because it might not be what it looks like? Or do I just err on the side of caution? Yeah. 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 And I want to ask you um, about the pornography tie as a factor in human trafficking. I know that the website Human Trafficking Search cited 80% of survivors report being shown pornography to illustrate sexual acts and, quote unquote, to train these girls. I mean, as you said, eight-year-old girls. Um, And thereby, a lot of them are forced into pornography for they listed three key reasons, the first being psychological control, the second being for financial gain, and the third, as a form of sex trafficking, pornography is considered to be integral to prostitution. Um, Yet pornography, we hear a lot in the United States, it heralded and upheld as a form of freedom of expression, um, even praised by feminists and other groups. Yet it seems like with a lot of the awareness that some of the networks such as yours is bringing forth, um, that tide is changing. People are seeing more of the danger in in prostitution, in pornography, and how it's tied to some of these areas of human trafficking. Yeah, I would say I agree with you. It is very much um, tied to it because it commodifies women in a way, um, objectifies women, and makes it a transactional, um, you know, transactional event. And so, with that, I find that you know a lot of um, the anti-trafficking community will draw a correlation between pornography and. Um, when they interview pedophiles or when they interview Johns, um, you know, most likely they would have had addictions in these areas. And then it gets to a point where slippery slope, where, you know, now you're, you're buying sex in essence. And so that is one layer. The second is I would say uh, talking to survivors and also in terms of the porn industry, unfortunately there are women and girls that are caught in the porn industry that are trafficking survivors or that are being trafficked. So they're being filmed as well as being trafficked in brothels. Um, It's a criminal network. And so with the network, um, it also in many cases fuels the porn industry. Wow. Um, There's so much that could be said there, but Diana, we know that, these women, as well as the families who at times feel forced to sell their daughters and um, relatives and loved ones and the such, um, they all possess an inherent dignity. And um, as such, you know, we can't turn a blind eye either, whether we're, you know, oceans away or whether it's, you know, a block away from us or whatever the case, um, because of their inherent dignity and because we need to care about the dignity of others. Um, I think the question is, first of all, how can we learn more about the Nomi Network? Where can we find you? And then also, um, what is the Nomi Network doing that we can take part in, such as you have um, something called buy her bag, not her body, which I love. Can you explain what that is and um, how any of us can support your efforts? 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for asking that question. Um, we have a website. It's www.nomi.org. And on there, um, there are several things that people have done from running races for Nomi to birthday campaigns to also purchasing products. Um, and Buy Her Bag, Not Her Body is a collection of tote bags that we developed. We also have Made for a Better Life, and all of the products are made by some of the women that have gone through our program, our particularly our fashion program in Cambodia. Um, and they are making products, designing products, creating, and really exercising their um, full potential. Um, a lot of women love just using the creativity and sketching bags and um, drawing, you know, vibrant colors. And so we've been able to take some of the designs and then sell it and distribute it on our website, but also in different stores and retail channels in the United States. Um, so that is one way. Also sign up for our listserv. It's on our website to get updates from Nomi. We um, send out quarterly newsletters as well as other opportunities to engage Nomi Network and our mission. That is so wonderful. I love that. And I want to say that I looked through a lot of the, I just got lost in those pages of looking through the bags and the shirts and everything that they made. And it's beautiful. It's high quality. I think you said that you got the materials from New York and then, um, you know, brought them to the women. And I just want to say that I personally will be buying most of my Christmas presents for others from there. So I really was impressed. I love everything that you guys are doing and what you stand for. So I want to thank Diana Mao of the Nomi Network for being here. You can find her at www.nomi.network.org. Thank you so much, Diana. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be on this call.